This talk was given by Denya Chike Levister at the Zen Center of New York City. Chike is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Zen Center of New York City. Thank you for joining us all this morning. I offer a warm welcome in particular to those who are joining us for the first time or who are new to the temple. It's nice to see everyone. If I look like I'm crying, I'm not. I'm having a contact lens moment. It's all good. <laughs> My name is Chike. I'm she or they, and I'm a lay senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order of Zen Mountain Monastery. I, I practice Buddhism. It's personal to me because I am interested in knowing what is true. I probably start every talk this way. But I've always been interested in understanding how I know things and my interest in understanding has led me to realize how important it is to, um, to know how to discover that for myself. And I've learned that Zen practice has offered me a lot in that regard. It's offered me so much mind, body, understanding, a mind-body understanding about my own nature, one I share with all of you. So what is our true nature? And so, you know, I've been raised, uh, like many of us, on the conditioned binary of everything, right? So when I ask myself the question about what's true, what's my true nature, it begs the question for me of, so what's lying? what's not true. And we have a precept about this. And let me, especially for new folks, just say uh, quickly what precepts are. So precepts in Buddhism, uh, most religions have moral and ethical rules and commandments. Uh, Buddhism has precepts. Uh, but it's important to understand that the Buddhist precepts are not a list of rules to follow. In some religions, uh, moral laws are believed to come from God, uh, and breaking those laws is a sin or a transgression against God. But Buddhism doesn't have a God, and the precepts are not commandments. It doesn't actually mean they're optional, um, but we don't have commandments. Buddhism is a non-theistic tradition, which means people who practice in our Sangha and Buddhism around the world experience many faiths in addition to Buddhism. The Pali word most often translated as morality is sila. But sila has a lot of connotations that go beyond the English word for morality. It can refer to inner virtues such as kindness and truthfulness as well as the activity of those virtues in the world. It can also refer 
to the discipline of acting in a moral way. However, sila is best understood, I think, as a kind of harmony. The Theravadan teacher, Bhikkhu Bodhi, wrote, the Buddhist texts explain that sila has the characteristic of harmonizing our actions of body and speech. The sila harmonate our actions by bringing them into accord with our own true interests, with the well-being of others, and with universal laws. Actions contrary to the sila lead to a state of self-division, marked by guilt, anxiety, and remorse. But the observance of the principles of sila heals this division, bringing our inner faculties together into a balance and centered state of unity. So today, I'd like to talk about the fourth grave precept in Buddhism, which says, manifest truth, do not lie. This is a complex practice. Manifest truth, do not lie. It has implications that are just so far-reaching. I guess I would say the, the rabbit hole goes deep on this one. And false views, they're deeply embedded, right? We can't easily toss them away. Often we don't even recognize false views that we own. Sometimes we lie to ourselves, maybe for some of us often. I have lied to myself often. I struggle with this, which is why I wanted to speak about it today. Not lying has its application in right action, right livelihood, lifestyle, and right social activism. Not lying means no complicity with lies, too. So that opens the whole thing, right? Not acting in ways that are lying, but also not not acting, right? We can lie by omission. It's not just doing. Lies bring disorganization and suffering to families, to communities, nations, and the world, and us. The three poisons in Buddhism, which are greed, anger, and ignorance, of self-centered motivation, destroy our consciousness of the interrelationship of all beings and give rise to poisonous responses all around. Truth, I think, like sex, needs a safe environment. If I speak from my heart, I want to feel you're listening. The truth is here, ready to be harvested, but it can't be heard if I'm here and you're there. We have such bad habits of not listening to each other and not telling the truth. I have found our sangha to be a place of trust, which has offered me the opportunity to examine big truth, truths personal to me, the two truths, the relative and absolute. And personally, I can only move at the speed of trust. In The Mind of Clover, Aiken Roshi wrote, the truth expressed with love 
is the Sangha treasure. The truth expressed with love is the Sangha treasure. I love that. So one of the ways I've been lying to myself for a very long time is in the form of negative self-talk. Self-doubt, negative self-talk, mind is Buddha, delusion is Buddha. For many of us, and I include myself in this for sure, the journey from negative self-talk to an experience of full-blown self-hatred is pretty short. And self-hate, I have found, is a glue of sorts, like building the structures of this conditioned self, this conditioned mind together. But then manifest truth, do not lie. Imagine looking at the world through tinted glasses, continually assuming that it's reality. In meditation practice, in zazen, the glasses come off. We begin to see that the tint is something that belongs to the glasses, rather than a reflection of truth. So we can begin by inquiring about what we've been looking through. What have we been looking through? Whose lenses are those? What colors them? What's in the way of my seeing clearly? So when I first started to question my inner negative self-talk, Who is this voice inside my head? There were the obvious psychological conclusions. Yes, yes, that's the voice of my dad. Oh, yep, mm mm-hmm, there's my internalized mom. But I also quickly saw that it was much more complicated than that. So I've been looking for a while now, and I'm still looking, and I hope to continue to work and look for the rest of my life. and never stop looking and questioning. But some of what I've seen so far is that, sure, I have the negative self-talk that comes from my upbringing and my parents and other influential humans in this particular journey of existence I've been traveling so far. But I also have seen that some of the roots of what I've told myself, I couldn't trace to anything logical not even experiences I've had. And I saw that some of this negative self-talk wasn't actually mine. It didn't belong to me, I just claimed it. And I found that some of what I was doing in my mind, the beliefs I claimed, had created a great deal of suffering for me. I was living the imagination of other people. This started very young for me. Um, My family of origin was a difficult um, experience, so I didn't really have very good role models for what it meant to be healthy, what it meant to be a strong woman, what it meant to be reflective. I spent most of my childhood reacting, reacting to create safety in an environment of fear and pain and substances and violence. 
despite feminism being a very important part of the world I grew up in. Some of my behaviors, my desires, the themes about why I have so often felt that I don't measure up, I'm never enough, it's never good enough, I don't get it right. Where does that come from? Lots of places. So I'm going to share one example. And I feel, I don't know, I'm feeling some kind of way about sharing this example. It's because it's complicated for me. So um, embarrassed, shame, but I think like we're as sick as our secrets, you know? So I'm just going to put it out there. So, and this relates to something we're seeing in society today and that I think we're very, very, all of us are very concerned about. So I had this, I realized I had this notion of who I was supposed to be as a woman that came from a television commercial. <laughs> it was a fragrance commercial. <laughs> And essentially, the fragrance commercial was like saying, like, this is a woman is someone who can like bring home the bacon and fry it up and always be attentive to their lover and always on all of those things, 150% all the time. That's what a woman is. And I've thought about that judging mind of myself. You're getting it wrong. You're not measuring up. It's not right. You're supposed to be perfect. You're supposed to do all those roles at the same time right. And if you don't get them all right all the time, you're a fuck up. You're not doing this life right. And what are you doing for sisterhood? Buying into this, not buying into this. You want to buy into it. You don't want to buy into it. So I wanted to share this particular example because, like, shining light on it makes it a little less heavy uh, for me. But also, I think we all realize what is happening today with young people and social media and how I don't think I recognize until I had this recognition that, like, holy shit, a lot of these ideas that I'm beating myself up around came from a friggin' television commercial. And then, and I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11 or something, like when I saw that. And because I didn't have strong models around me in my life, I was like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be. And so I'm thinking about these 9, 10, 11, 15-year-old young people on TikTok, on social media, and they're seeing these images of like what they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to look, how they're supposed to act, what it means to be accepted, what it means to be acceptable enough to be seen, valued, possibly worthy of love. And it just struck me as so powerful, like, wow, I have that experience too, even though I grow up pre-social media, and how open we are as young people to the messages, to the messages that surround us. And since I didn't grow up with all the social media stuff, and I was impacted so deeply by one 
television commercial, probably many more, but that one, I just think about the amount of stimuli that young people are facing and navigating and negotiating and trying to figure out what it means to be them, what it means to be worthy, lovable, enough. Manifest truth, do not lie. And here lies one of the greatest gifts of practice, the capacity not to take personally what you've always assumed to be yours. In fact, not only what you've assumed to be yours, but perhaps what you've assumed to be you. I assume this to be me. I worked really hard to try and combust all those ideas and fulfill them. Is that me? Is that what I am? And it's not my experience that through practice, negative self-talk, the voices of my inner critic disappear forever. Uh, I think to believe that gives... Um, an illusory voice in my mind, solidarity. It's going to go away forever. I'm going to do this and do never see it again. Like, that it doesn't actually have. I don't think that that's real either. It's my experience, though, that through practice, we become clearer and clearer about what the voice is. Um, and therefore, we tend to fall into the trap of believing it less and less frequently. The result of my practice has been that more and more I find that sometimes my thoughts are like clouds. I feel steady. I see the sun. I see clouds. They pass by. Clouds do whatever the clouds do. They're transitory, impermanent. I am undisturbed. There they go. There's plenty of room for any and all weather patterns in the truth and practice of reality. It's also helped me to learn to see beyond my own story practice. Most of, most of us have the um, often unconscious, I think, assumption that our story, the particular set of life experiences from which we derive our sense of self, is the totality of who we are. No. Manifest truth. Do not lie. Stephanie Selassie, in You Belong, A Call for Connection, explains that unity underlies all differences. Separation, she says, that's the big delusion. You're not, never were, never will be. She says that belonging, it's innate, and that we rediscover belonging by our longing for it. We rediscover our belonging by our longing for it. And I suspect, for those of you who are new to the temple or new to practice, and maybe not just new, maybe all of us, that it's part of what brought us here, this longing for belonging. It's just human 
this desire to belong. All the ways we feel we don't fit in. She says, do you feel the humanness of that desire? Do you? Is there a part of you that knows the universality of that longing? Can you tap into that? She says, be longing. And that we are because we belong. We are adapted for connection and cooperation. We instinctively default to that. Kindness and generosity, they're encoded within us. It's our nature. And being, she says, is fundamentally relational. I love that line, because that just feels right. Being is fundamentally relational, right? Like, what is it to be without the experience of? I like to think about that. So you're not separate from anything. Don't you feel inherently that you belong? All this points to the doctrine of the two truths in Buddhism, relative and absolute. Although we're not one, we're also not separate. And although we are not separate, we are also not the same. So what are some of the ways that I've gone about all of this? Trying to observe the precept, manifest truth, do not lie, with regard to my negative self-talk. How can I sometimes stop lying to myself in the form of negative self-talk? and recognize the true, belie- the true belonging that is already ours. The practice of Buddhism, specifically Zazen, helps to create mindfulness. And I, for me, that's been a key. The word used in Buddhism theory is a Pali term called sati, which means to remember or to recollect. Mindfulness is a practice of recalling what is real, returning to the present moment where our ultimate reality lives. By using mindfulness, we create perspective, which is what we desperately need when we are facing self-doubt and negative self-talk. If we can become an observer of the words we say to ourselves in our own head, we can then choose to react to it or not. I read an article uh, in Tricycle, uh, which was called Overcoming Negative (laughs) Self-Talk. I'm like, yes, I need to read that one. Yes. Um, And uh, the author um, offered a practice, one one practice, there are many, right, for dissolving self-doubt. I was like, okay, I'm up for that. What's the practice of dissolving self-doubt? Yes. Uh, But I found this practice helpful, and so I thought um, I'd like to share it with all of you today. Um, And this is from that article. 
So there are three main steps to it. So the first is I become still. The first step when we're hit with a self-doubt, landslide, is to pause. There's an Al-Anon um, mnemonic. Al-Anon's very big on mnemonics, and I love a few of them. And pause is one of them, which stands for postpone action until serenity emerges. I love that. So the first steps, be still. I believe, become still. Pause. Our fears around internal criticism, they're going to make us want to run. But doing that only increases doubt. Have you ever found that running helps you? Pausing catches self-doubt off guard. And it's the foundation of mindfulness practice. So you sit down or you stand up and you take a deep breath. You release it. And you do this two more times. I do three. Notice the air entering and leaving the body. Just be here. Next, I observe the doubt. Instead of pretending it isn't there, and I'm really good at that because I've done it a very long time, so instead of pretending it's not there, observe my self-doubt directly. When we face something head on, we often realize it's not as scary as we thought it was. We can hear the words that our own self-criticism uses. It's important, I think, to note that by observing, we're becoming mindful of it. We can realize that that doubt, it's not us. It's just an old trope, a tape, something we just have a habit of playing. It's a thought playing on repeat in our head. The next stage, the last of the points in the piece, is to get curious. So I get curious. So the doubt's not me. It's a thought, not so tangible not really even physically present. So what is present in this moment? What is present? So I try to drop beneath the defeating, exhausting dialogue of my mind. And I ask myself, what are my senses telling me? Body truth. Can I feel my heartbeat? Can I feel my butt on the cushion or my feet on the floor if I'm standing? What do I smell? What am I hearing? Am I fully aware of what my physical body is taking in? Of what I'm feeling physically, where I'm feeling it? Or am I inside my head? And I'm so much more than a head. I mean, I really do think I spent a lot of my life thinking whoever I was, it was from the neck up. This is a mind-body practice. 
So listen to this dialogue. I listen to this dialogue for a moment instead. What do I hear? I bet whatever it is, is a truth much more beautiful than the voice we began with. And that's one we can develop the choice to hear over time. Become still, observe the doubt, get curious about what's present in this moment. Manifest truth, do not lie. This practice reminds me that I don't need to escape from reality, even when it's sprinkled with doubts. I can realize that underneath my self-doubt, which is an idea, I can use my body to discover what's true. Those of you who are new to the temple today who came downstairs, uh, after beginning instruction, heard the monitor Joshin say, try and be still. We find that when the body moves, our mind goes with it. Right? There's wisdom in our body. It's really important to notice that. Try and align. We say and we chant, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, our senses. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. Why is it that I have acted in ways in my life that suggest there's a hierarchy with my mind? It's at the top. It's just one sense. And we are not our self-doubt. We're not our lies to ourselves or the lies we've been told, our negative self-talk, the lies we've been taught, we are not those things. We are something so much greater. And so I don't want to let my critical voice win. So here's the T, as they say. <laughs> it's just like this for now. Whether it's exquisite, whether it's excruciating, it's just like this now. In fact, it will never not be just like this for now, whatever this is. The good news is nothing lasts forever, and the bad news is nothing lasts forever. So if you love it, well, enjoy it, because it's temporary. And if you don't love it, be with it. Because it's temporary. It's just like this for now. This is intensely important to me personally, and it's imperative collectively. We can't disidentify from the negative self-talk when we claim it as who and what we are. How would you respond if a person were following you around in your life, commenting on your every move, most commonly with criticism or at a minimum veiled judgments that serve to, quote, 
help protect, support you in being realistic? Like, how long would you keep that friend around? Can we let them go? So, if this is your path, be in touch with your innate honesty. And your zazen will be the foundation of an honest life. It will help you realize this fourth grave precept, manifest truth, do not lie. This, precepts, this precept finds its home in zazen, in our vast and fathomless existence. The truth, it cannot be contained. The truth can't be contained. The truth, it lives in you already. It finds its home in your family, in meetings at work, in dealing with our personal inadequacies. Repeating Aiken Roshi, the truth expressed with love is the Sangha treasure. So I'd like to end with a poem. In 2002, Ada Lamon was appointed the United States Poet Laureate. And I love her work. So this is a poem of hers called what it must have felt like. Palm-sized and fledgling, a beak protruding from the sleeve, I have kept my birds muted for so long. I fear they've grown accustomed to a grim quietude. What chaos could ensue should a wing get loose. Come overdue, burst. Come flock, swarm, talon, and claw. Scatter the coop's roost. Free the sinuet and its shadow. Crack and scratch at the state's cage. Cut through cloud and branch, no matter the dumb hourglasses, white sand yawning grain by grain. What cannot be contained cannot be contained. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.